Welcome to the New England Baseball Journal podcast presented by Firecracker Sports. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Today's guest is a former Red Sox prospect from Rhode Island who was a two-time brainstem surgery survivor. Ryan Westmoreland had his dream of playing professional baseball taken away in 2010 when doctors discovered a cavernous malformation on his brain. In the decade plus since, Westmoreland has rewritten his inspiring story by staying involved in baseball as a coach and travel ball director. He is currently the assistant coach at UMass Dartmouth, in addition to being a program director for the Ocean State Makos. I'm excited to hear Ryan tell his story, which I think will be inspiring for anyone who is facing adversity this season. Before we get to Ryan, I'll review some of the ways you can engage with the New England Baseball Journal platform. This winter, we are pulling back the curtain on New England's largest travel programs to try to give players and parents an idea of what's out there. Visit BaseballJournal.com to check out those pieces. We're also doing state-of-the-program reports on each of the New England's Division I programs. In addition to visiting BaseballJournal.com, you can sign up for our free email newsletter, which goes out three times a week and highlights the latest content on BaseballJournal.com. We're also starting to work on the first print edition of New England Baseball Journal for 2022. The print publication includes prep previews as well as college features at the D1, D2, and D3 levels. If you want to receive the publication at your home or office, click on the subscribe tab at BaseballJournal.com. Thanks again for listening to the New England Baseball Journal podcast. Here's Ryan Westmoreland, who is connecting with us on Zoom. Hey, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the pod. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I, I, I think our listeners are probably wondering about the timing of this since um, you, you're you coaching now at UMass Dartmouth, but you haven't played in over a decade. But your name came up a couple of times, and it made me think of you over the last few weeks. Uh, first, we did a, a report on the New England Roughnecks, and I was talking to Steve August, and he was saying he credited you for really putting that program on the map and changing the expectations and the culture of the program and then a couple of weeks ago, somebody posted on Twitter a question about which player's career you'd like to see play out if he was able to stay healthy. And Will Middlebrooks, who played for the Red Sox, uh, responded with your name, saying you were the most gifted player he ever saw. How does it make you feel um, to have people still kind of talking about your talent and your playing career when it's been so long since you've been on the field? Yeah, it's, it's been an, it's been incredible, especially um, you know when that came from a guy like Will Meadowbrooks, who was a major league player, and um, he played against and, and with some of the best players in the world. So for him to be able to look back at a at a guy like me that never made the major leagues and to say something that 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 nice and that genuine really really meant a lot. And um, I actually talked to him right after that, just thanking him and. Um, just so appreciative that he still honestly remembered who I was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've become somewhat of a, an inspiring figure for a lot of players around New England. Um, obviously, you have New England roots and then came up through the Red Sox system, which was, um, you know, kind of the dream for anybody who's from New England to go and play uh, eventually leading up to Fenway. Uh, how did you come to embrace that role for yourself where you are somewhat of a, an inspiring figure to young athletes? Yeah, I, I, you know, right from, you know, uh, in travel ball, you know, my high school years, I, I had the, you know, I was from New England. I didn't play all year round. I wasn't, you know, able to play a 50 game high school season. Uh, so I really took it upon myself to, you know, prove, 
prove to everyone that New England baseball players and, and Rhode Island athletes in particular can can be just as good, if not better than anyone else. And um, I kind of had that mindset through my whole career. Um, you know, I might not have been the, the biggest, strongest, fastest guy out there, but I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to prove who I was and, and where I was from. And um, to this day, I, especially coaching now at the college level and, and the high school level, I'm, you know, able to tell, you know, these kids that, you know, just because you're from New England doesn't mean you're going to be looked at any differently. You just go out and do your thing and, and you show everyone who you are. And how did you do that? I mean, it, it's it's difficult to, when you're talking to kids from Rhode Island or, you know, some of these New England states where it's so hard to get on on the map nationally. Did you find uh, ways or events that you really had to shine at to really get yourself on the radar on a national scene? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I give all the credit to, to you were talking about him, Steve August. Um, my years with the Roughnecks, obviously, those were the most important years, baseball-wise and recruiting-wise, of, of my life. Um, and what, what Mr. August did was, you know, he exposed us to, to different venues and, and teams that um, – I would have never gotten seen really by, you know, SEC schools and Southern schools at that age if I hadn't been in these Southern tournaments. And I'm not sure if it was a East Cobb, Georgia tournament or a Virginia tournament that we went down to. Um, but if it wasn't for that, um, like I said, I wouldn't have really gotten recruited as much uh, to Southern schools. So I give him a lot of the credit there. Yeah. And you were you were viewed as one of the the top prospects in your class not only in new england but in the nation you committed to vanderbilt ended up getting drafted by the red sox right out of high school um just touching on that decision i know you know you signed for two million which when you add up you know four years of vanderbilt it's not really even close especially back then uh what went into that decision were there other do you think you would have signed with anybody for two million dollars or just the red sox yeah i mean i would have signed with anyone um for that amount um I had let all the teams know ahead of time that, you know, that's where I was at. And if not, I was going to go to Vanderbilt. And I was very happy about that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, it just so happened that it was the Red Sox. And, you know, my forever, they were my favorite team. Um, that, that was just a happy coincidence. Um, but the, the decision was obviously really tough because, you know, that was right at the peak Vanderbilt baseball when they're really coming um, on the national radar and David, David Price and Pedro Alvarez were kind of coming through. Um, so I think the, the, ultimately my decision was, you know, what, what route, um, is best for me to get to the major leagues. And I think whether I signed with the Red Sox or went to Vanderbilt, the ultimate goal was to get to the major leagues. Um, and I, I felt like signing out of high school was going to be my quickest path, um, to, to the major leagues. Yeah, and and you were definitely on track for that. When you look at your professional career, your first season, you played a short season in Lowell uh, with the Spinners, and uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they were really good. You know, you had like eighteen for eighteen stolen base attempts. You hit like you know about three hundred. I think your slug slugging percentage was about five hundred. Uh, and so at that point in your career, if you take a step back, you know it looks like the right decision. You went pro. You were ready. You're on that track. And a lot of guys that you were, you know, kind of ahead of in terms of the development ended up making it to the big leagues, uh, you know, in the next three or four years. What at that point after that first short season in Lowell, what did you envision your pro baseball experience would look like from there? 
Well, I was honestly, I was very optimistic. Um, you know, I, I don't know the exact, you know, signings and stuff, but I remember that there were a few short-term signings in the, the major league uh, team um, that I, I kind of, after my first season, I thought, you know, maybe those are, those are guys that are getting signed until I can get up there. Um, you know, maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe that was just me thinking that way. Um, but after my first season, I, I certainly felt like getting to the major leagues was a, was a pretty good possibility. Um, so when I saw those, those short-term signings um, at the major league level, I, I, in my head, I was thinking maybe this is my chance. Maybe this is, these guys are being signed because I'm on my way up and, um, I'm going to be, I'm going to be able to fit right in. Right. Yeah. And at 18 or 19, I think you were ranked as the top prospect in the Red Sox farm system. Um, you know, by 22, you were retired from baseball, which it just seems so crazy how quickly that happened. How long, uh, did it really take to accept that fate that, um, you know, baseball wasn't going to be in your future anymore as a yeah, player, I should say as a player. Yeah. Um, Definitely months, um, if not a year. Um, yeah, I think the hardest thing was was you know watching TV and seeing my good friends getting called up. The the you know Will Meadowbrooks and now you know Anthony Rizzo um, when he got called up and Casey Kelly. Those are the guys that I kind of came up through the farm system with. So it wasn't like I wasn't happy for them because I, I absolutely was. Mm-hmm. Um, it just put me in a place of you know that should be me. That could be me up there with them. Um, so that was, that was the hardest thing to watch or you had to watch on TV. And um, I remember for months and months after my, after my surgery, I didn't even watch uh, baseball at all. Um, just cause I had that, that mindset that, you know, why is that not me? It could have been me. Why is this happening kind of thing? And um, you know, it did, it did take me a while, especially as a, you know, as a 20 year old, you know, yeah, absolutely. That must have been really difficult. How did you find your way back to the game? Like, how did you find that that was valuable for your mental health? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a while, obviously, like I said. But, um, you know, when it came down to it, I still loved the game and I still loved to be around it. And um, it took a while. But once I got back and realized that I had an important message about my personal story and I also had you know, a lot of baseball knowledge and advanced experience in the game. Um, and I was, I was, I saw the reward in, in giving that to young athletes and, and now college athletes and to be able to, to use my story to impact others, whether it's on the baseball field or off. Right. Yeah. That's, that's commendable for you to be able to do that and give, pay it back to other athletes who are, you know, might be facing adversity. Um, I want to go back to your story. I want uh, back to the initial diagnosis. And you actually have a tattoo of uh, the exact date where you got the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, you know, you had, like I said, you were making a quick ascent through the Red Sox farm system. Um, when when you first heard the news or what, what actually made you feel like that you needed to get looked at by doctors? Like what were the initial symptoms that said, hey, something's not right? Yeah, so I want to say this probably late February of 20, uh, 2010, um, down at spring training, The you know, we've worked out there before the actual spring training, um, and I was playing ping pong um, at my, my condo with my friends and teammates, um, and I noticed, you know, one of my hands felt numb, almost like it was asleep, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of just brush it off, like, you know, I'll wake up and it'll be fine. Just felt like, a, you know, your hand was asleep. Um, so I kind of woke up the next morning, still felt kind of weird in my hand, but didn't really think too much of it. Um, and then once I went out for like a dynamic stretch where, you know, you're doing the, the whole thing, getting loose for the day, I felt like my whole right leg and right arm was numb and really weak. Like I could hardly stand up. Um, so that's, that's kind of when the red flags went off, like, you know, this isn't my hand asleep anymore. This is, this might be something different. Mm. Um, but again, I was 19 years old, so I didn't really realize what, what it could be. I just knew that it wasn't right. Um, so I went in, um, to the medical staff and they said it could be head or neck, maybe just like a pinched nerve. Um, again, as a 19 year old, I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, my brain could be affected. Um, so I kind of just was trusting whatever they said. And obviously there were major league training staff. So they didn't have as they didn't think they're one of the players would have a brain bleed. Um, so we stretched it out and I still felt weird and, um, ended up getting an MRI. That's what it, it showed the, the massive bleed, um, on my brain stem. So was there any, like, once you knew what it was, uh, was there any sign of it, like, before that February where maybe just, you know, something, your fingers are tingling or anything like that? Or did it all happen right then in February? Yeah, the um, it just happened right then. Um, the doctor, the surgeon explained it as, you know, it's like a birthmark. So I really had had it for years and years and years. Um, it just decided to bleed that that day um so there's really nothing um the year before in Lowell I I crashed into the wall and you know I've I've had some some injuries and none of that was was played into this um it was completely random and um like I had said um it had been there forever pretty much so um it is just unfortunate that it bled uh when it did and where it did um but no there was no um you know, I didn't feel it any, any days before that. Wow. And what was the, uh, like, I would assume there was, they were probably in a hurry to get in there and stop the bleeding. What was the timetable in terms of surgery and what was the diagnosis in terms of what your outlook for the rest of your life would look like? Yeah, it was, um, it was a very quick process. Um, we went from the MRI, it would have been late February. Um, and I saw three neurosurgeons, um, in Boston, New York City, and then ultimately in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And I had the surgery on March 16th. So that's about, you know, three weeks from diagnosis to, to the surgery. Um, and it was, it was, it was funny, the, um, you know, the surgeon right before surgery, because of where my bleed was in the brainstem, um, the, the effects of the surgery could have been anything he said from, you know, a coma, paralyzed, death, um, even to things like you could have the hiccups to the rest of your life. Um, so I was obviously like, like I had said before, I was, you know, 20 years old, 19 years old at the time. So I, I had no idea what, what rehab was going to be like, if I was going to even make it out. Um, so it was, it was a very trying time for me and my family because, and friends, because, you know, I'm a young guy, I'm a professional athlete, top of my game. Um, all these publications that come out. Um, and then at the drop of the hat, you don't know if, you know, your career is going to end, never mind, you know, whether or not you're going to live much longer. 
Yeah, I mean, athletes hate going under the knife, if even if it's something small, like, you know, right. fixing a toe or something. That's That must have been horrifying. Do, who was... Uh, who do you remember like providing support and comfort during that time when you really needed it? I remember, um, well, apart from my family, cause obviously they were there through the whole thing, but, uh, baseball players, I certainly remember John Luster, um, and Anthony Rizzo. Um, those are two guys obviously that went through cancer. So they, they knew what this was like in a, in a sense, you know, they had been through the, you know, I'm a, big time professional athlete and then I get sick and don't kind of don't know what the future holds. Um, so they were, they were great. They gave me a lot of inspiration that um, just to fight and never give up, never quit. Um, and then that's kind of the words I held on to through the whole process. How did the Red Sox uh, respond or react to, to the news? What, what could they do? Yeah, I don't think it, obviously they were terrified because they had never dealt with anything like this. Um, but they were nothing but supportive. Um, to this day, I, I've been out of the game for as a player for 10 plus years or so. Um, and they'll still text me all the time and just check in how I'm doing. Um, and it meant a lot to me and my family to have you know, the Red Sox there is not only my, you know, not just my employer, but they're my family too. And, you know, from the players themselves to the, the front office, to all the training staff um, just genuinely cared about, you know, how I was doing and how I'm doing today. That's great. What do you remember about the surgery and the, and the, and the days after? I mean, it must have been, you must have felt like a completely different person. Yeah, I, um, I want to say the first 12 days after the surgery, I don't remember anything of um because of the, it was a i think an eight hour surgery so obviously there was a lot of you know anesthesia and stuff pumping through my veins so about the first 10 12 days i don't remember anything of um the, i think one of the first things i do remember is how how difficult like everyday things were that we take for granted you know like you know tying your shoe or screwing on a bottle cap um whereas you know before something like tying my shoe would take you know 20 seconds and now it was taking 10, 20, 30 minutes. Um, so that was, that was frustrating because you go from, you know, being, a, being with the Red Sox and running and hitting and throwing and being at the top of the game to all of a sudden, you know, things like tying your shoes are incredibly difficult. Right. So that, was, that was an adjustment for sure. Yeah. I have a friend who actually had brain surgery and, uh, you know, it's, it's a long process of getting the nerves back firing and the timing and everything like that. It's just a hard, really hard thing to do. Did it, did it make you appreciate how natural baseball came to you prior to the surgery or, or were you more um, frustrated that it wasn't coming so, so easy anymore? Um, I guess a little bit of both. Um, like you had just said, um, it's a long process. So I think just being who I was, um, you know, I wanted it to go faster and I wanted to get back on the field as soon as I could. Um, but it obviously wasn't going to happen. Um, and I, I think in the back of my mind, I knew that I knew that this was going to be quite a process. Um, but, you know, I've always appreciated, you know, how I played the game before the surgery it was truly unfortunate what happened to me. Um, but, you know, I was very blessed to have the ability that I had and, um, to get the the opportunities to get drafted at a high school and sign a commitment to a 
to an SEC school and um, just had those opportunities was, was a blessing, whether I made it to the major leagues, I got sick, whatever happened, just to be able to look back and say, you know, at one point I was, I was that guy. Um, it makes me appreciate what I had. The New England Baseball Journal podcast will be back after these words. Firecracker Sports serves all first-time and experienced coaches that are looking for quality showcase tournaments to promote their players and teams. We offer the most independently operated baseball and softball events in the Northeast region with qualified staff and college coaches to help you and your players get maximum promotion. Besides events, you can get all your baseball and softball needs with our player profiles, hotels, and even facility sales now. With Firecracker Sports, you can save time, effort, and money by getting all of your event's college resources and customer attention in one place every season. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division 1, 2, and 3 colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. Now, after the first surgery, uh, you still planned on returning to the field, or at least you were working towards that. Um, what was that process like? Did you do you think you were on track to get back to where you were? Yeah, I think I was on on track. Um, you know, the rehab process from brain surgery is not like a you know Tommy John or a rotator cuff kind of thing where you kind of just get your range of motion back and your strength back and you're good to go kind of thing. You can get back on the field. Um, I obviously had a lot more serious things going on, like to even to this day, I can't feel anything on the right side of my body. Um, I can't see out of my left eye or I can't see, but it's double. So um, I have issues with seeing. So um, kind of having to to take that all in and realize that I don't just have to strengthen a muscle to get back on the field. Um, I have to do a whole, a whole lot more. Um, but having said that, I, you know, I had the drive and the passion to want to get back. And I eventually got very close and um, I played um, in pro and professional Dominican um, instructional league with the Red Sox. So that was, that was kind of the first time where I was like, you know, this has been a long road, but I think I can make it. I think I can get back. That's incredible. I can't believe you made it that far back and that close. Um, and then what, ha- what, what, what was the setback that kind of ended your playing career? Yeah. So um, after the Dominican playing, I was all excited and optimistic and, you know, I was, you know, excited to get back down to Fort Myers and, and continue my rehab. Um, so I flew up to Boston uh, to do my, every three or four months, I went up to do a MRI, just kind of a checkup. 
um, kind of a thing. I wasn't feeling weird. It was literally, you know, just every three months or so, I would just get a checkup and the surgeons, the doctors would just make sure I was on track. Um, and like I said, I wasn't feeling anything. So I had no reason to think that something was going to be on the MRI. Um, and then about a week later, I was actually playing golf with my friends. Um, and the Red, the Red Sox doctor, Dr. Larry Ronan, um, he had called and all, all he said was, you need to go out to Arizona. And he kind of didn't really explain it right away. So I was like, oh, like what's going on? And then he finally said, they found something in your MRI. You're going to need to go out to, to Phoenix uh, to see Dr. Stutzler ASAP. Um, so this time I, I, when I went out to Arizona, I wasn't feeling weird. I wasn't feeling numb or, or tingling. Um, so I didn't really know what was going on. And, and he kind of explained it that um, I had the same exact bleed in the same spot, um, completely random again, uh, just absolutely hard, like horrible luck. Um, and I was going to need another surgery. And um, I kind of knew right then and there that, you know, it took so long to get back to where I was. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that all over again, probably worse off than I was the first surgery. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's terrible news. Um, and so did you, I'm like, just on the timing of when you uh, retired, was that, did you announce it before you even got your surgery? Like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to play again. Or why did you, uh, why did you announce it at the time that you did? Um, so after my surgery, I went back to, to Fort Myers and I hadn't told anyone, you know, that I might not be able to play again because, Again, being as driven and, and passionate as I was, I thought, you know, if anyone can do this, it's it's going to be me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Um, so I, I rehabbed and worked out for a while, or a couple months here and there. Um, but then I just kind of looked back and I said, you know what, this isn't going to happen. And if it were to happen, it would be years and years and years of rehab. Um, and I just think that it's time to turn the page and and move on. Um, and it was tough. It was a tough decision, especially as a young 20 year old, you know, pro athlete to have to do this, but, um, I thought it was the best move for me. And, um, I just thought China, uh, turning the page and, and going to a new chapter in my life was, was the best move for me at that point. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Uh, now I was reading, I think it was in a globe article that you had a period where he struggled with depression and, uh, contemplated suicide, which, Obviously, when you have your identity taken away at such a young age, that's uh, completely understandable. Uh, what was that period in your life like, and how did you find the strength uh, to share that? Because you know, professional athletes don't always talk about you know mental health. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason I decided to talk about all that is is because I, I felt like my story and um, you know everything I went through off of the field, you know, medically was was a story that I wanted to tell and I wanted to impact others. And, you know, whether, you know, who I'm talking to doesn't, isn't sick or, but maybe they know somebody or, you know, it doesn't have to be brain surgery. Maybe it's cancer or whatever it is. I just felt like my story and, um, you know, what I had gone through was something that I wanted to impart on, on others and then hopefully inspire others and impact others. Um, but I think the, the, the whole depression suicide contemplation for me was, kind of based around the, you know, why me kind of thing. Um, you know, 
being so young and and being so gifted athletically and you know feeling really good about myself to all of a sudden you know having absolutely nothing um you know not like i said going from running a you know six two to taking 30 minutes to tie my shoes was kind of a a, a shock and i kept going back to the why me why me um you know my friends are getting called up and you know that should be me and it was tough it was tough to swallow and um especially as such a young kid you're kind of forced to mature and um for me i had two i had two options it was either end it right then and there and and just you know just you know give in to what i was thinking or or the other route which i ended up taking was use what i've gone through to like i said before to try to try to impact and inspire others and you know whether whether they're athletes or not whatever they're going through is um i felt like being able to share my story would would be impactful absolutely yeah no i was i heard the other day um i was watching nick Foles was uh did a press conference after the bears game and they ended up winning he's like a third string quarterback this year i think he started because of some injuries and COVID issues and they were asking, like, how did you find your confidence in this game as a third stringer to go in and lead your team to victory? And he's like, I don't look at myself like that because in his life, he's always found purpose outside of the game. So everybody else might look at him. You're, you're a third string quarterback, but he has a purpose outside of football. And it sounds like you you kind of went down the same route. Like, what is the message that you want to how do you want to use your life? And, um, you know, if you think about the impact you would have had to made as a player to equal what you've done, you know, since your playing career, I, it would have been difficult to match that. Um, and now you're, and now you're also coaching. Uh, what, what, what do you find or what joy do you find in doing that? I think, you know, just, I always was a big believer in not only being a good player and athlete as a, you know, as a player, um, I was always very big, be a good person too, because you never know who's watching or, or how you're impacting others. And for me, when I was getting recruited, I, I remember obviously Tim Corbin with, with Vanderbilt was, you know, he's the guy that looked for that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, I was, I was a respectful and a good person off the field. And I remember he told me that it meant a lot to him. And there's a lot of coaches and people on the outside that, that noticed that kind of thing. Um, so I always preach to my players, whether it's younger or older, um, to just, you know, be respectful, be a good person. Um, you're here for a reason. You're a good player. Like the, the, the UMass kids, I know they're good players. And I, I tell them they're good players. And I preach, be a good person off the field because that's what's going to last. You know, how you are as a person is going to last. Playing baseball, for me, it was cut short for – I mean, it's going to end for everyone at some point. Um, and so the impact you're going to have on others is how you are as a person. And that's kind of that's kind of the the message that I've always tried to get across to my players. Yeah, that's an important message because so many guys are not going to go on to play professionally or get drafted. But that's the one thing you can carry with you. Um, I was reading an article. I think it was on your 10 year anniversary of your surgery. It said you are now had 17 surgery, uh, you know, operations on your brain. Um, and that, that may have been even higher than that now. Cause that was about a year or two ago. How, how does the, how do those surgeries affect you today from a physical, mental, emotional standpoint? 
Uh, emotionally, I don't think it's affected me a whole lot. Um, honestly, it's been so many, uh, 19 now, um, that it's just, you know, it's just, you know, I've gotten through this once, twice, three, all these times, you know, I can do it again. Uh, so emotionally, I haven't been affected, um, as much as, as one may think. Um, physically, certainly, um, I have a lot of, you know, side effects, um, you know, the, the Bell's palsy in my face, I still can't feel anything on the right side of my body. Um, my balance is off. Um, uh, just those little things here and there that, you know, that, that were really frustrating at the beginning, beginning, but, um, I've learned to kind of deal with them, um, to kind of just, you know, say it is what it is. And, and, you know, it was unfortunate, but this is the, the hand I was dealt. Um, and to kind of just, move on as quickly as I can. Cause I know how I don't, I didn't want to let frustration get the best of me like it had before. Um, I know the the consequences of that and I wasn't willing to, to let myself get to that place again. Um, so I, you know, that, that goes along with my, my mental state. Um, you know, just, it's frustrating. Sure. But you know, there's worse things out there. Um, and you know why whatever the reason was this happened it, it happened to me and um it is what it is and there's no point in sulking and you know sitting at home and and just look in the mirror and say why me it's more of just turn the page and and move on and try to be as positive and optimistic as you can right on uh now have you been back to fenway at all or have you i know it was difficult at first to be around the game um i feel like Fenway fans would go nuts if you showed up. Have you been? Yeah, we, me and um, I would say it was two years ago. My throughout the first pitch um, with my dad, um, and it was incredible. I got a standing ovation, and you know, I knew obviously a lot of the guys still playing, Jackie and Moki and Xander and all those guys. So it was really special. Um, the standing ovation was, I mean, that's that's an incredible thing, regardless. But the fact that you know, as a minor league player, you know, I wasn't a major league guy. And here is, you know, 20, 30,000 people standing and clapping for me because they think someone knew of my story and knew what I had been through. So it meant a lot to me to to have that kind of a reception. Um, and it's, it's something I'll always remember. That's great. Um, now, I was reading one of the things I saw, and obviously you're press, um, you are stressing a message to the players of, of being better people. You have, you know, you could relate to them during the pandemic when some people had baseball taken away suddenly. Obviously, you know that's a relatable story for you. Uh, so, from a, a from a mental and emotional perspective, you know, there's so much that you have to offer as a coach. What would you say your style is in terms of you know teaching fundamentals or even you know strategy in terms of coaching? Yeah, I think I mean, you know, I'm not a very big you know analytic guy. Um, you know the the all the different statistics out there right now are great for for analyzing stuff, um, but I'm a big believer in that's I don't think that's the way to teach, um, especially the younger kids. You know the major league level, obviously that's a lot different. Um, but I'm a big believer in just keeping things simple and doing things the right way and not worrying about the numbers and the the different analytical aspects of of swinging and throwing. Um, I'm a very big believer in just doing things the right way mechanically and letting the numbers take care of themselves. Um, you know, I'm a big, big time, just 
you know, I'll teach the fundamentals of swinging and throwing, um, but I won't use any, you know, angles or, you know, anything like that to, to enforce what I'm saying. I, I always say, you know, your exit velocity, for instance, that's going to come if your swing's right and you're, you're a strong athletic kid. I don't, you know, I don't teach kind of molding around you want to get to 90 miles an hour or whatever it is. I say, you know, do things the right way and teach things the right way. And those things will come afterwards. Right. Yeah. That seems to be the right order. Um, and then just to, just to finish off here, just a couple of life uh, goals that you're aspiring towards or big events that have just happened for you. I saw that you're working towards your college degree at Northeastern. You uh, recently got married in the last couple of years and you have a nine month old child that's uh, new to the family. So congratulations on all of those. How is the pursuit of your college degree going? It's good. I'm um, almost my junior year um, at Northeastern. I'm majoring in liberal studies and minoring in business management. So um, that's been, it's, it's obviously tough when you take 11, 12 years off from school in general to have to come back and remember what you what you knew um but it, it's been it's been a good experience and i remember when i signed with the red sox out of high school one of my always i i always said i'm going to go back and i'm going to get my degree because education is something that was so important to me and it's so important to everyone um to be able to to get that education is is you know it's paramount it's priority um and then yeah so my wife and I got married in June of 2020, so obviously right in the midst of you know COVID the first time around. So we had a small little church ceremony. Um, we were only able to have like 30 people. Um, so we actually we got married then, and then had our reception this past summer in July, when we were able to have friends and family and everyone celebrate, which was which is really cool. Um, and my daughter. Um, is nine months now. She was born on St. Patrick's Day this past year, um, and it, she's great. She's she's certainly brings a whole new perspective to to life, and um, you know, being a dad is is something I always wanted to do. So um, it's it's very special time. Yeah, absolutely. That's so great to hear. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been inspiring. It's a it's super timely with 2022 just getting started as people kind of adjust their mindset going into a new year. So thank you so much for taking the time and uh, happy new year. All right. You as well. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thanks to Ryan Westmoreland for joining the pod. Before we close out a few programming notes, rate, review, subscribe to the New England Baseball Journal podcast on your preferred platform. Be sure to subscribe so you can get an alert every time a podcast goes live. To keep up with all things New England baseball, visit BaseballJournal.com. We update the site with new stories daily. Click the subscribe tab to get the fall edition or winter edition mailed to your home or office. Follow us on Twitter at NE underscore baseball. We also want to hear from you if you have recommendations for guests or questions that you'd like me to ask. Send a DM on Twitter or email dguttonplan at BaseballJournal.com. Thanks again for listening. The New England Baseball Journal podcast is a Siemens Media production.